But when the Messiah arrived, high priest of the superior things of this new covenant, he bypassed the old tent and its trappings in this created world and went straight into heaven's tent. Oh, I'm reading the message. I was like, that doesn't... All right, here we go. We're going to start over. All right, here we go. Hebrews 9, from the ESV this time. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one made it, who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenants that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year, with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. These are the the words of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Not used to doing that part. All right, tonight... I'm going to offer you a crash course in atonement. Atonement is best explained by breaking down the actual word to what it spells out, which is at-one-ment. Atonement is the restoring of something that's been broken apart or fractured. And last week we talked about the temporary priesthood of the Levites and the temporary structure of that priesthood, which was the tabernacle. And that comes up again this week. That was contrasted by the permanent priesthood of Christ, who enters the eternal sanctuary, which is God's presence. So these chapters, what we read last week in Hebrews 8 and the beginning of Hebrews 9, and then tonight in Hebrews 9, 
our long treatment of the temporary and then the eternal with Christ bridging that gap. Of awesome Rabin making the case that Hebrews is a sermon. It's this sweeping retelling of the whole story of redemption from beginning to the end. And the goal is helping us to see that we live in that story. That's what the Hebrews preacher is getting at. And we've talked about these warning passages to not drift away toward our idols, but to instead stoke the embers of our faith. And we've seen how Christ is superior to all those messengers of God who came before him. And in that, we see that the Old Testament is not something that we replace or repurpose, but it's our history. It's the origin story of humanity, and it's the origin story of the church. Karl Barth, who is kind of a problematic theologian in some ways, but has some really great quotes in others, he has a great quote on this that I want to read you. The Old Testament is not an introduction to the New Testament, which we can dispense with or replace. We cannot eliminate the Old Testament or substitute for it. If we do, we're not merely opposing a questionable accessory, but the very institution and existence of the Christian church. We're founding a new church, which is not a Christian church. Whether we like it or not, the Christ of the New Testament is the Christ of the Old Testament, the Christ of Israel. John Calvin puts it this way. This is what we should, in short, seek in the whole of Scripture. Truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. If one were to sift thoroughly through the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to him. Therefore, rightly does St. Paul say in another passage that we should know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The problem that Hebrews presents for us is that we can't simply start living into the story of God. We can't just read the story and say, I'd like to join that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start calling that my history. There has to be an at one minute. There has to be some sort of redemption that restores the breach between God and humans, heaven, and earth. And the whole story of redemption begins with the fall, which is accounted for. Well, it begins with creation. But the story of redemption really picks up and is necessary because of the fall in Genesis 3. And then it doesn't end at the end of the Bible. It reaches its fullest culmination at the end of the Bible in in Revelation. God's story, I tried to make this case really clearly last week, is not a bumpy, unpredictable series of trials. It's one story. And that story's major pivot point is the is the first coming of Christ, which Hebrews 9.28 describes as so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will then appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Hebrews is telling us this story, but it's more than storytelling. Uh, and today I want to, I want to, try to explain to you why we are not just hearing these things, but we are able to live in them. And I want to do that by answering two questions that I think Hebrews 9 raises. The first one is, why do humans need to be re-educated in wisdom 
Okay, why do humans need to be re-educated in wisdom? And then, why do humans have a debt to God? So let's begin with this, this why do humans need to be re-educated? And, and that's where we're going to pick up the tabernacle again that we talked about last week, which is what verse 24 calls a sanctuary made with hands. To make sense of the tabernacle, we need to go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. The whole purpose of creation is, is that God wants to dwell with his people. God is good, and God is relational by nature, and God has reproduced that in humans. He wanted to have a creature that reflected that goodness and that relational sensibility. And so he made creatures that were, uh, had the capacity to love one another and also love him. And then, of course, principally... He loved the creatures. That's, that's Eden. For these creatures, they were, they were new. They're brand new. And they had no history, no knowledge of life's goodness. They had no knowledge of God's designs. They were made with this capacity to grow in that knowledge. And they were made with a capacity to grow in wisdom. And they were especially made to grow in their love for God and each other. And God warned them that as they grew into that, the, the only way to do that is with him. It's for him to be the one to teach them about wisdom and love and the design of Eden. But you probably know that they disregarded that advice and they altered the created world forever by going rogue. It wasn't that God put this tree in Eden to say, you know, don't eat this or a trick's going to happen. What he was saying was, I want you to gain your wisdom through obedience to me, not through your pursuit of your own autonomy. So that's the fall in a nutshell. God's goodness is perfect, okay? And it's flawless and it's pure. And contrast that by his flawed creatures who went rogue. And they now live in this polluted environment because of their choice. So his goodness is there interacting with, with their imperfection. And uh, if you take something that is so perfect and intense and powerful and you put it in something near something imperfect it's going to consume it <laughs> and I know that that's kind of mysterious but hold on and we'll, we'll try to flesh that out the reality is that God created humans to relate to each other and to him and that that was vulnerable to corruption uh, because humans chose to go the autonomous route and then we're we're saying through Hebrews that Christ is the one that fixes that. It's mysterious. And Paul actually says that in Ephesians 5 when he writes, Since we're members of his body, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become flesh. This mystery is for profound. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. There's something really mysterious about why is it that because Adam and Eve chose to not obey God, we can't be in a relationship with him anymore. And there's something mysterious about the fact that because of his death, we're reunited to him. But here's, here's the headline for you. 
The whole arc of history is bending towards restoring Eden. The whole purpose of creation is for God to dwell with his people. That's not happening. So God is moving history back towards that. The arc of history is not, as you might have heard, to escape the earth and get away. And it's not to just avoid hell. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than both of those things. It's to reverse the fall. It's to return to the Edenic perfection. God's people, in order to get there, need to be re-educated. They need to get that wisdom from Him instead of from themselves. They need to re-educate in the design. They need to re-understand what His ways are. But there's also... This other part that's even bigger, which is that we destroyed what he made in the first place. So there's this this debt that accumulates because of that. And so what I'm making the argument for tonight is that Hebrews is saying the tabernacle, the law, all of these things from the Old Testament. They're trying to say, hey, you don't get it. You're not living a life in God. And before we can even get the at one minute. You need to understand that there's a distance between you and God. You can't solve a problem until you know that you have a problem, right? So this is where the law and the tabernacle and these uh, different ways of worshiping in Israel come in. I know that they're kind of strange because they're not things that are part of our culture. But if you understand them principally as these ways of educating people, I think that that can be really helpful. The tabernacle, which we talked about last week, is this this huge tent with a courtyard around it. And God instructs the Israelites on how to build that tent and then use it for worship. In Exodus, God gives them instructions on how to build this. And he also gives them the Ten Commandments. He's helping them understand why they can gain wisdom by following him and learning from him instead of following their own ways. And most of the Old Testament, I think, could be described as God's people living however they want and God patiently helping them return to him and learn the design for a good life with him. So the tabernacle, it's a worship space. Anyone could come into the courtyard and by walking into this courtyard, what you're saying is, I'm physically moving closer to God. I want to move. I want to turn towards God. I want to... I want to repent. And then once you've entered the courtyard uh, past that, there's this space where priests could go into the tent. And they could offer these burnt offerings and they could provide these ritual washings to people. And, and then when the priests could go in there, they could pray for the people in, in this little area called uh, the holy place. And then beyond the holy place, there was another room. It was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And that's where, that's where the Spirit of God was present. So as you're walking into this courtyard, okay, I know this is strange, but you're walking into this courtyard. What you're doing is, first of all, you've just turned your posture to say, God, I want, I want to turn back towards you. And then you're getting this sense that I want to get closer to you. So I'm going to enter into this courtyard. And I want to be closer to you, so I'm going to send this priest to Pray for me inside of that tent. And then once a year, the high priest is going to go into that place where where God's presence is. But the problem is, can can that really uh, 
reunite all of humanity to a holy God? How do you take a perfect and awesome and powerful God and put him in the presence of flawed, imperfect, unkind, whether they're a priest or not, humans? You, you really can't. You can't put those two things in the same place. We could, in Eden, Adam and Eve were able to somehow walk around with God because at that point, they were these perfect little reflections of his goodness and his love and his design. But on the other side of that, we're imperfect. And because of our imperfection, being around this perfect force of God, we're going to be consumed up like metal in a fire. If we're so imperfect and he's so perfect, I think the question is what would be left of us if we walked into his presence? And that, that's what the tabernacle is teaching us. It's this liturgy, the sacrifices and the laws and the rituals and the tabernacle. They're all creating these acts of participation that guide us back to being in God's presence. Oh, I want to I be back in God's presence. I'm going to turn towards him. But at some point, you just, you hit the curtain, and you realize, I, I, something needs to be rectified here to get me on the other side of that. And when we realize that we're not living in his design, that our rebellion and our pursuit of wisdom on our own prevent us from being fully in his presence, then we recognize that things really can't move towards reconciliation until something is done on our behalf. A few times in this sermon series, I've mentioned that we live in a disenchanted world. Uh, we, have a, we have a world that puts an overemphasis on the here and the now, the imminent, not the transcendent. And the tabernacle is definitely uh, something from a different time, a mode that we're not necessarily all participating in, or I, likely none of you have a tabernacle in your yard. That's just my guess. But it's a bit like a church in that it pulls you out of the mundane and ordinary things that lull us into sleep about our condition. The tabernacle, or the church, wake us up, figuratively speaking. Although this church also sometimes puts people to sleep because it's at night and it's quiet. But church is supposed to take us out of the mundane, the sleepwalking that we do, and get us to realize what is our actual relationship to God? So think of the tabernacle as removing oneself from your ordinary routines. And like liturgy at church, it removes you from your routine and it imposes a sense of reflection on you. Liturgy, tabernacle, these are, these are terms that we don't use in our everyday life. But you can understand why they're effective at helping us be aware about our delusions. Think if you've ever had an experience where you've removed yourself from the ordinary and it's woken you up from a slumber. And if you can understand that, then you can understand what the purpose of the tabernacle might be. You know, maybe for you it was a, a road trip or uh, spending time at the beach or camping or a retreat or just like a uh, yoga class or a hike. You know, entering into those spaces take you out of your, retreat, your, your routine and, the, and they make you think about what's really going on in my life. Two years ago, my buddy Hayes Wofford, back there, we planned a trip to the Dakotas, and uh, I wanted to go to North and South Dakota because I had this goal that before I turned 30, I was going to visit all 50 states. 
and I only had the Dakotas left. Unfortunately, age 29, not a great year to go to the Dakotas because we were having a baby and graduating grad school and Aaron uh, was changing jobs. So I had to move it to age 35. I said, before I run for president, I am going to visit all 50 states. And we did it. We went to uh, North and South Dakota. We went to Theodore Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota, and we started in the Badlands in South Dakota. Uh, if you know me, you know that I have spent a lot of time in the wilderness in Oregon and Colorado, where I went to college and grew up, North Carolina, Virginia, Montana, California. But none of these places looks at all like the Badlands, if you've ever seen what the Badlands look like. I went in pretty confident in my backpacking skills, but the first day I panicked because uh, you look out over this landscape and it's just the same. It's gorgeous, but it is alarmingly the same. We, we hiked in. I felt pretty good. We're going through this prairie with this wispy grass and hiking towards these rock formations. And then we get up to this, this like little gravel plateau, a gravel bench that looked out. And when we got up there, we could see the whole park, the whole national park, or as far as the eye could see, you could see no roads, no humans. And, um, and I panicked <laughs> uh, because these formations are endless and they're completely indistinguishable from each other. You know, when you're hiking in a place like Colorado or Oregon, there's like a lake or a, like a very specific mountain. And you're like, oh, I know I'm going this way because that big mountain is behind me. But you get into the Badlands and, and it's just like, this is identical and indiscernible and endless. The other thing, if you've ever seen it, is it, it's just this dusty red rock. So there's no trails. You're just, you're just having to walk through and use a compass to navigate through like these rocks that all look identical. And, um, and I, I just felt like, man, I'm, we're on Mars right now. And, uh, and I was like, I don't know if I can go enter into this because you add in the fact that there's no water. You have to carry all of your water in and we were going for three days. So if Hayes had not been there, and, uh, and if he didn't have significantly more experience in using a compass, I, I would have gone back to the car. I would have slept on that gravel bench and then gone down. And I did, in fact, suggest that um, because I was really overwhelmed. But that trip was really formative for me because every step was thoughtful. We had to use a compass and, and just mark where we were going and be aware of where we were at all times. I couldn't just be mindless and go through a routine of following a trail. I was left to watch each step and attend to each thought that entered my brain. Because we didn't see another human. And we, you know, at some point you just run out of things to talk about. And I'm just having to reckon with everything that's up here. That trip reminded me of my humanity and my smallness as a creature. And I think that's what the law is. And that's what the tabernacle is. They're a shadow of a reality that help us see more soberly our smallness. And once we understand our smallness and our distance from God, then we can understand the need for atonement. 
for our culture, it's hard to get to atonement because we feel big. You know, we seem very autonomous because we build buildings and we drive cars and we treat disease and we plan cities and we map roadways and we measure things in time. It's all, it's all measured and contained and we get it. We're pretty important. We're getting the job done. But I think when you get into a place like the Badlands, you realize, wow, I'm not as impressive as I thought I was. You know, I need to move outside the patterns of my life to see that God exists and that the distance between God and myself is pretty radical. And so we start with these acts of pilgrimage or liturgy that can wake us up to our distance from God. But that doesn't get us back to him. That's, that doesn't solve the at one minute problem. If you feel spiritually stagnant or doubtful of God's existence, then I just want to ask you to take yourself out of your routine in a literal or a figurative sense. Uh, This is why people travel. This is why people do silent retreats. Uh, It can be as simple as fasting from media like podcasts or Instagram. But you'll feel what I felt. If you're somebody who looks at their phone all day and you fast from using your phone, you'll feel like you're at the top of a gravel bench in the Badlands. Like, I need to turn back to the thing I know. And if you, but if you push through that, if you push through the desire to run back to the car in the parking lot, uh, then you're gonna, there's going to be some, some reward on the other side. You know, for me in the Badlands... Uh, pushing through and getting around, we hiked 15 miles the next day. And we passed a herd of probably 500 bison, which was just crazy. And we had to change our route because of them. Like I said, we never saw another human. We couldn't see the roads around the park. We were completely isolated. But that second night, we found this amazing campsite that was tucked in between these giant rock formations. It was completely clear. And it, it felt like the moon and the Big Dipper were just like a mile away, just hovering right over us while we were sleeping. And in that moment, I just felt like, wow, I'm so thankful for the last 24 hours where I became more sober in in this reality because instead of being terrified now, I'm living in awe. I want to be reconciled to the one who made those stars and made that moon. And that's where atonement enters our thinking. The law and the tabernacle are shadows. They reflect negative space of what's missing. As the Arcade Fire lyric goes, if you see a shadow, there's something there. The shadow is not the thing. It just indicates that there's something there. It can't repair the breach or repay the debt of humanity to God from wandering away from his design. Uh, The word Christian is often just uh, for us a noun or an adjective, and I keep pressing us on trying to make it something bigger. Christian's an all-encompassing lifestyle. it, It says that existence is miserable without God. Despite what people tell you, despite what you might trick yourself into thinking, Being a Christian is nothing less than having your entire identity taken over. So identifying as a Christian might include some things like your ethics or your behavior or viewpoints. But the essence of Christianity is accepting that on your behalf, 
Jesus Christ has worked to repair humanity's connection to God. The world is broken. Which may not even be the way that you see your reality. You might be thinking, I live a pretty sweet life. Things feel good. But that, that's why Christianity is something that is dealing with something more cosmic than just our little peccadillos and trying to get us to live right. Christianity is recognizing that all of creation is aching with pain. Over generations, our species has been a toxic presence in creation. It's created all sorts of problems here and a big rift between God, the creator, and his creation. And we might be focused on our little foolish choices and think, well, if I just start living like a Christian again, well, then I'll, I'll be a Christian. But that doesn't solve the cosmic issue of this giant rift between the creator and his creation. That's why I think it's just absurd that there would be any view of Christianity that you would describe as living your best life now or enjoying everyday life. that's That's a ridiculous description of Christianity. Christianity is not about our best life or what heroic thing God can do through us. It's not a balm for the foolish to not have to deal with their foolishness. Christianity is not about reducing our guilt. Bonhoeffer calls all of those things cheap grace. Cheap grace is being told that you've been naughty or silly or foolish, but God wants to make you feel better, so never mind. Never mind. Jesus loves you. Don't worry about it. Our world, though broken, is beautiful. It features the badlands, Features the Blue Ridge Mountains. Features humans who possess a glimmer of God's creativity in our very nature. Because we raise children and we bake fresh warm bread and we cultivate gardens and we make music. But overall, over generations, we've been insulting God's design from the very start. And we might check in through prayer, but we're not really eager to listen to him. And Cheap Grace says, that's no big deal. That's okay. Just pray tomorrow. You got this. Don't worry about it. But the gospel says that what God has made is so good. It is so good and so expansive. The the defamation of it that happened at the fall needs reckoning. Not just a do-over. God's going to chase down what is owed to him. Because he made Eden, he made a perfect reality, and it was destroyed. He's going he's gonna to want to fix that. And so Christ gave up his throne in heaven. He, he gave up his privilege as the king of the universe, and he came here to find us. Because we're his children. But we're also his debtors. He came because he wanted to finish the debt. Not wipe it off the books with a cheap mulligan. He wanted the violent, costly war necessary to truly satisfy the rift. Because he wanted to secure it. That's what Hebrews says. He wanted to secure it. He didn't want anyone wondering if the debt was truly resolved. You can owe a debt and have it be forgiven, but you'll still wonder every day whether that person might change their mind whether that debt might be called up at a later date, whether they were serious when they said you don't have to pay it. God didn't give us a do-over. 
Atonement is not a do-over. It's like a shakedown from a bookie. The books between God and humanity need to be rectified. There is a massive debt owed. And uh, Christ is that bookie. He's, he's coming to recover his money. He's come back and he's, he's saying, there's a big gap here. But in the final moment, or as the Bible often says, in the fullness of time, instead of being the bookie who called us all on our debt, he stood on the other side. And he bled out his light and his life to right the deficit. He didn't forgive it. He didn't forget it. He completely paid it. That's what Bonhoeffer calls costly grace. Costly grace is that God and his people are so far apart. And we've so grossly insulted his designs and wisdom that repaying it is going to be dramatic. We're the prodigal son. Our father gave us his friendship, his kingdom. He gave him a vocation that we could work in his land. He gave us some provisions. He even gave us some pleasures. And then we ran off with this spoiled smirk and a crude hand gesture. If someone tells you that God's grace is his way of saying to you, it's no big deal, then you should plug your ears and just start shouting in their face. Because <laughs> that, thank you. I mean that absurdly because that's, that's crazy. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, that's no big deal. God just wants to do over for you. We make mistakes all the time. We lust, we lie, we complain, we gossip. But those aren't the little reasons that Jesus died on the cross. That's, that's part of it. But those are symptoms. Jesus didn't die so that we could get a pass on our lust or our lying or our whining and our gossip. There's a rift in the cosmos between God and his people. And because our species has asked to be away from him, we're the ones that need to have that. We're the ones that need to pay the debt. Adam and Eve asked for autonomy, and then we were born into the world that they asked for that in. That act of running from God was violence to him. They did violence to this place that he gave them. He, they, they destroyed the home that he made. And it just ruined the light and life and love of Eden. And destroying something so priceless would require more than tokens and gestures. It would require blood. In the tabernacle, we see the shadow of God. That is that he's present, but not discernible. The tabernacle, the liturgy we do at church, these show us the debt of destroying God's estate. And that that debt's massive. I wish we lived in Eden. I wish we lived in a place where sex crimes didn't happen in churches. I wish we lived in a place where the lives of babies weren't so fragile. I, li I wish we lived in the place where nations were not at war. And where hunger did not exist. 
To restore such a place is not as simple as a do-over of grace. To secure that debt, to redeem it, would require something drastic. Perhaps violent. Perhaps even the taking of life. It would require retribution and recapture. Blood. Because blood, after all, is, is the ultimate currency. Nothing is more costly than blood. Life's impossible without it, and to take it is to take everything. To place a goat or a bowl on a stone table and crack it open, crack open its flesh and let it bleed out, that is it's violent. It's grotesque. Instead of goats, instead of sheep, instead of pigeons, a lion came to win the war to reclaim Eden. The lion had every right to destroy humanity with rage and vengeance because it was his property. But instead, that stately lion allowed the rage and vengeance to fall on him to pay the debt once for all. And Christ is that lion. He's Aslan on the move. Here to shake us. Not to say, oh, it's okay, you get a do-over. He's here to call us back home. He's here to show us how devastatingly deep the rift is between God and his human creatures. But instead of taking our blood, he threw himself on the altar. The kingly lion of power and glory let his flesh be sliced and his blood let in until he was lifeless. And so when you hear things like, nothing but the blood of Jesus can atone, or Jesus paid it all, that's such good news, because what God is saying is not, I want to give you a do-over. Don't even worry about that one. He's saying, I'm going to give everything for you. Amen.